Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Day. Thank you so much for stopping by. Well, I finally got old Santa Claus calmed down enough to record today, so let's get after it. Wheeling, West Virginia is a beautiful place. I've been there many times and I love it dearly, but sometimes the most beautiful places on earth are holding on to something they just can't get rid of because there just hadn't been a solution found yet. It was in Wheeling back in 1977 that the unfathomable took place on what most in Wheeling thought to, to be hallowed ground. There was a young lady studying to become a nun in the Catholic Church who was killed in a broad daylight on the campus of Mount St. Joseph's, which was the home of the community of nuns as well as a care center for the aging sisters and their families at the time. So come on in, set the spell, and let me tell you the true horror story directly from the Appalachian Mountains. The whole story started with Roberta Ellum. Roberta had lived in the Fulton neighborhood of Wheeling before she moved to Mount St. Joseph's for an eight-day meditation stay. She was 26 years old and the oldest of four children and a native of Minnesota before moving to Illinois and then to New Jersey before making the last move to Wheeling in 1976. Roberta did what she came there to do, which was pray and ask guidance on becoming a nun. She strolled over and to an area of the convent's campus that offered an overlook of a couple of links of the Ogle Bay Spadell Golf Course the, to contemplate her lifetime commitment and was last seen alive in the convent kitchen while grabbing a quick snack before taking her hike. Now, the staff told <clears throat> investigators that she visited the kitchen around 10.30 in the morning of January 13th, 1977, and walked out to a nice quiet place near the orchard to pray about life as a full Roman Catholic nun. Just before enrolling with the Sisters of St. Joseph in the fall of 1976, Roberta was, for a short spell, was the coordinator of adult religious programs presented by the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, all across the state of West Virginia. It sounds like she was a young lady all about spreading the good word. Now, at Mount St. Joseph, she was known as Sister Robin. She was a very pleasant young lady, but Sister Robin was never seen alive again by anybody aside from whoever did what was done to her that day. Now, when she was found, the bench that she was most likely sitting on praying was knocked over. 
She was no doubt dragged by her throat away from it. She was sexually assaulted and finally strangled to death and left where she took her final breath. According to everything that I could find on it, Sister Robin's partially clothed body was found by a groundskeeper about three hours after the crime had been committed. Her neck and legs were bruised and her slacks and white blouse were stained with dirt from the ground and from her attacker. Leads poured into the Ohio County Sheriff's Office and to the West Virginia State Police because people thought they saw something along Pogue Run Road, which was a road near the place where Sister Robin had been found. Vivian Elliott was among those witnesses. She was a 20-year-old and actually worked at the facility at the time. There were areas at the time along Pogue Run Road where cars would pull off the road. It was a local lover's lane, you might say. Now, Vivian said that there was a car in one of those areas that she remembered seeing. It was a blue, and uh, she thought it was probably a Chevrolet, but never was actually positive of what model it was. She remembered seeing the same car a couple of times and told the police that when she was interviewed. Also, at one time, deputies and troopers examined what similarities, if any, existed between Sister Robin's murder and a series of assaults and murders that haunted nearby Washington County, Pennsylvania. Nothing, as far as we know, had ever panned out, despite the involvement of a whole slew of law enforcement agencies, but it left the public wondering whether or not a serial killer was on the loose. The West Virginia State Police were in charge of the cold case, or is still in charge of the cold case today because of mandated jurisdiction, but four decades ago, they were joined by the Sheriff's Office and the FBI, too. Now, everybody involved in the investigation got pretty frustrated, pretty blamed quick, because everybody believed it should have been an open and shut case. It was a pretty shocking situation to everybody, not just the investigators on the case, but nobody in the community could believe anybody would do such a thing to a nun, let alone believe that it would take place where it did. Mount St. Joseph is the same sanctuary today that has been since the estate was transformed into a home for sisters during the late 1950s. Bishop Richard Vincent Whelan, the very first bishop in Wheeling, requested sisters to work with the development of a new diocese back in 1853, and four nuns arrived soon to work in the new hospital. After two more nuns joined the group, the six formed the Sisters of St. Joseph and In May of 1860, the sisters were established as an independent congregation by Bishop Whelan. Now, the population of nuns in 1977 in the Wheeling area numbered many more than the sisters that that are there today in the entire upper Ohio Valley, as a matter of fact. But Mount St. Joseph continues operation with 32 nuns currently in residence and 51 still serving the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston. Now, the infirmary still offers care and a strong auxiliary organization which works to raise funds for the sisters. Despite the addition of several cabins and a second professional golf course on nearby Ogle Bay land, the property still remains a nice quiet place today, but the loss of Sister Robin has become something of a legend of the land. People with roots in Ohio County and who are between the ages of 60 and 80, like I am, lived, <clears throat> lived it firsthand. Those between 30 and 59 years old may have heard about it, but those younger likely noticed, uh, you know, back in a few years back when the Deadly Tale got cold case coverage. Now, 
things did change after Sister Robin was murdered. The nuns no longer ventured out, and the nuns would go to the pool and swim back then, and and then even stop doing that too. Uh, after the first few days, nobody around the place wanted to talk about it anymore. It was so shocking. Doors were locked and windows were secured despite the summer where the mercury hit 87 degrees. And in fact, the majority of homes in Ohio County relied on fans instead of air conditioning to start with. Now, people were scared. What line would an animal not cross if he would do that to a nun on convent grounds in broad daylight and then strangle her to death on top of it? The story was all over the place, and it was page one and every day because the news writers and the editors were completely in disbelief, too. Police were walking around all over neighborhoods for more than a week, but then it just got feeling the local folk, like whoever done it was going to get away with it. But deciding to retreat to Mount St. Joseph, Sister Robin was assigned by the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, to travel to West Virginia, where before she decided to go to Mount St. Joseph's. She was assigned to the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston to travel to West Virginia's most rural areas to offer information about the available Catholic-based social services. It was a mission involving helping people, and it was, according to the interviews of those in residence at the time, exactly why she was working toward her vocation. She often took trips uh, alone with uh, or maybe with another sister at times and the nuns walked all over the campus never fearing any kind of harm but after june 14 1977 the written and the unspoken rules for those living working and visiting mount st joseph's underwent a drastic change everything changed for everybody everything about how they did things there and they even got a german shepherd to guard the property it was devastating for the entire community it was just unbelievable. The place was on total lockdown, and no longer would anybody go outside and enjoy the quiet or even look up at stars or anything else. There was a chance somebody could be out there ready to pounce on another person or take them out, just like they did Sister Robin. Nobody wanted to put themselves in the situation where that could happen again. The case file, according to Detective Doug Ernst of the Ohio County Sheriff's Office, remains off-limits to media members simply because it's still an active case. Most of what has been collected during the past four decades rests in a few banker boxes and inside are many details of the crime that only the perpetrator and investigators know. Now, we've received several requests for file reviews, but those have been turned down, Detective Ernst explained, and that tells me that there's still a lot of interest in the case, and it's likely likely because most of those uh, it was one of the most sensationalized crimes that they've ever seen to remain unsolved now we don't have to get a lot of murders around there he said but definitely not a crime like this and because of some of the sisters who were living there at the time of the crime are still living there i'm not gonna stop folks stick around there's more coming you're listening to appalachian murder mystery and legend with larry bentley Folks, the story of Joseph is one that ain't really ever told much because there really ain't much to tell. We know that he was 54 years old when his wife immaculately conceived and then gave birth to a son he would adopt and foster until his death 18 years later. Of course, we all know that his wife was Mary, 
the mother of Jesus. And he became Saint Joseph, who was a carpenter when alive and now the patron saint of workers, unborn children and fathers, and even immigrants. Josephology is the study of Saint Joseph. There are three study centers located around the world. He was known as a working man who followed God's commands. But other than that, little is known about his history other than basically what we got written in the scriptures. Roberta Elam, or Sister Robin, was hired by the diocese when she filed a request for her retreat. Now, nobody was a bit surprised. She had experienced a bit while living in four states during the 26 years, but was uh, at least prepared to think about a far different existence. Sister Robin was at Mount St. Joseph's to think about her life, the religious order she was entering, and whether or not a life of poverty and service was her destiny come true. Reese Blair was the Ohio County Sheriff for several years during the 70s, and he released a sketch soon after the murder that was based on interviews conducted immediately following the attack. The drawing showed a white man with dirty black hair, full eyebrows, a beard, and a mustache. The deputy with the Ohio County Sheriff's Office also was told that there was a faded blue car with the bumper stickers parked along Pogue Run Road. Risking, though, thousands, or risking through thousands of tips, hundreds of interviews and an outraged and fearful local folk ending up with nothing that panned out and they know of or we know of anyway despite the power of the sheriff's office being joined by the west virginia state police and the fbi there was still no arrest ever made and no motive was ever established i say again that we know of now back then folks it wasn't a federal offense but murder being murder wasn't a federal offense that is but it was against state law which meant that the fbi had to be requested to help in the case before they could be involved at least uh, that was a good move by the local police they realized early on that this was going to be complicated uh, and got the help they needed the fbi wheeling office worked very well with all the local enforcement agencies so they helped out with finding the out-of-state suspects and running them down. They did take a look at a few people, one of <clears throat> one that was a pretty strong suspect at the time in the Cleveland area, which shall remain nameless because they didn't release his name that I could find. Now, if you talk to just about anybody who's involved with the case today, they'll tell you that it was mishandled pretty badly from the get-go, but we got to remember that Offices and investigators operated very differently back then. In 1977, when the voters elected a new sheriff, he brought his own people in for the deputy positions, and that meant that a guy could be a farmer one day and a sheriff deputy the next. That's just the way things rolled back in. Even in my neck of the woods, I remember a few sheriff or new sheriff beginning and an old bringing in an old mountain boy and that liked his moonshine and it wasn't long before the sheriff was credited with having a nose like a coon dog for sniffing out stills i wonder how that happened but when tim burgoyne who'd been a federal agent for more than 30 years before his retirement was elected ohio county sheriff back in 2001 one of his first election or actions was to reopen the unsolved murder case believing something in the file could tip the scales 
My wife and I were very familiar with the sisters at St. Joseph, and there was a few still there who were there back when the murder took place, he explained. They tell us even today that they think about it every day, so I knew it was important to them, and I truly believed that a new set of eyes might be what it needed to move the case forward and make making it final. But when you have people tell you that they still have issues with sleeping at night because of how vicious the attack was, you know that it's still important to people. It was sure enough shocking, I can tell you that, and people are still talking about it. I get asked questions about it once the case, probably more than any other case that I've ever been involved in, is what the sheriff said back then. What Sheriff Burgoyne and his investigator discovered was DNA of the murderer, and since the perpetrator's DNA profile has been shared with nearly 200 crime labs across the county, or across the country as a matter of fact, and has been added to the National CODIS system, a database, you know, of as you know, that, that where they keep the combined DNA indexes of all the people that they're looking at, and but uh, thus thus far the uh, among the two dozen leads that have uh, that they had, uh, man, well, most of them have been cleared, but they still have that one DNA that comes back negative, and he'll say for now about all he'll say is uh, they have very good DNA so we can be hopeful and positive that a hit will be returned one day but like I said every time they send it out they fully expect maybe they'll get a hit but uh, right now they've all they've got is null there are also details to this case which known by only a few and that's because the crime scene was a bit complex and too much public information erodes evidence although the case seems to be be so close to being solved because of the DNA now. Some of the facts have been leaked through the years. I'm not sure if it's an actual leak or maybe purposely put out there, but they are. The crime scene was hidden from sight from anybody on the golf course. Of course, that's a gimme and not a secret, but fact nonetheless, all of the golfers who played the Trent Jones course that day were investigated by authorities at the time these at the time the crime took place. The man who found Sister Robin was a facility employee who, after having lunch with his wife, was collecting used telephone line in his pickup truck, and that's when he found her. The body wasn't completely naked. It was a sexual assault, so unspecified clothes were removed, and they just keep that to themselves for right now. Sister Robin was a low-risk victim who had an ex-boyfriend in New Jersey who proved to be a non-issue in the case and she wasn't riding the bar scene and wasn't into drugs so whether she was alive or dead at the time she was assaulted is unknown by us but there are valid theories that uh, the investigation you know that's where they concerned the motive now was it a man suffering from mental illness or was it she targeted specifically or maybe the unsub just uh, knew the woman sat there in a complete solitude and I guess if a deviant's out looking to do something like this, they might view that as asking for it in their work view. Now, one primary suspect, who they still hadn't named yet, already was already a prisoner at the state penitentiary in Moundsville in the early 1980s, and the man was already on law enforcement's radar. His roommate at the time went to jail officials and told them that his cellmate had confessed to murdering Sister Robin. The state police ran Code 3 right over there and dragged him straight into the interview. 
and according to case records, he didn't admit to squat, but did make a few interesting statements that almost tripped himself up. The next day, when he was scheduled for a polygraph test, he shut the hell right up. That was the end of that, and the development yeah, slowed the investigation to a near halt from every indication from everybody at the time. It was supposed to be the guy, but uh, they never could prove it. It was, wasn't long after the, that DNA testing that we talked about that there was another suspect, one a close DNA match to a male located in California at the time. When he was dug up, and I do mean dug up, he was dead. He'd taken his own life, but when the police report was obtained here, he noticed <clears throat> it was noticed that the investigating detective had extra vials of blood that had been retained from the evidence, and they was able to rule him out. It wasn't a match after all. There was another individual suspect of strangling his, suspected of strangling his assault victims to the point of unconsciousness in Moundsville and in Wheeling, but the individual had not been not murdered anybody and hadn't <clears throat> committed his crimes in rural areas. I think I'd still want to talk to him. When they went to find him, they found that he had served time in prison, but had actually, well, he was gone, done passed away too. His ex-wife and his two children were alive though, so the children's DNA was compared to the Mount St. Joseph murder, and again, it came back negative. Law enforcement knows that the perpetrator's blood type is type A, so they ran through even more records to eliminate the possibilities for DNA testing. A priest, brothers, employees, neighbors, and other people who lived in the area were were removed, and more than 40 people were cleared because of that fact alone. And in the end, no primary suspect came to light as of 2014, and there still ain't one today, and again I say that we know of. There is, though, that one individual who has never been located, another nameless individual. The man reportedly suffered from a mental illness and was homeless and often seen in Ogle Bay Park, and uh, Although he possessed a police record at the time of the murder, the man was never seen or arrested and never been seen since. As a matter of fact, his family hadn't heard of him either, and he's never been found. Now, Sister Robin was laid to rest in the Mount Calvary Cemetery in the section of where many nuns are, uh, have been interred through, throughout the history. And the case still could be solved, although with each passing day, the chances go down just a little bit more. But there is the CODIS system, and now DNA profiles are added to the database every day. Of course, we know that. If the killer is still alive, I'm sure he knows exactly what he did, and there's still yet today some of the local folks who may know something that uh, they have yet to reveal, you know, because they might not even know they know it public attention to the case is depending mostly on local media and that will take place again I guess com coming near the anniversary next year and the investigators hope it might jog a person's memory enough to make a phone call and place the last piece in the puzzle that they need to find a monster what done this now so was it somebody that lived in the area or was it a random person who was just coming through town uh, it's my opinion and I'm just like everybody else. I think it was a local person because the chances of somebody finding that place was pretty much zero. I mean, unless they just accidentally stumbled on it. Uh, finally, finding the murderer now relies on one thing, 
a positive DNA match involved in a case anywhere in the United States. There's been no real information about the perp ever released, how old he was, or why he was in the area at the time, and what his motives even were. It's sad to say that those answers may never be found, but the killer's DNA profile has been in the system for about 10 years now. More than 20 suspects have been scratched off the list, and no leads have been known to exist, like I said, as far as we know. There is one other thing, though, that just might be making the deviant who done this just a little bit nervous. They can now track down these killers using reverse DNA like they did to find the Golden State Killer. That's got to be in the works, and as soon as that happens, we might be able to see any frog marched in the police station and fitted with a new set of orange clothes. Now, until then, there remains a grave site at Mount Calvary Cemetery that is not served with proper justice. That would be the grave of Sister Robin Elam. Folks, I hope you got something out of our story today. I remember hearing about it when on the news back when it happened and always thought they'd probably caught the degenerate that did it. But, you know, if you like the podcast, throw us a rate and review on whatever podcatcher you're listening on. Come on over to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk Appalachian or about anything else you want to bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then.